Welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I'm one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am the other one of your co-hosts, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And, as always, we've got a phenomenal poem. And this one is by the poet Frank Chipasula, who is a Malawian poet who was born in 1949. And just some additional biographical context that I think is important for the poem itself. He, well, this is just a fun fact, but he published his first book of poems in 1972 called Visions and Reflections, which was the first Malawian book of poems in English. Wow. Um, yeah, which I hadn't known. When he was um, 23. Yeah. And so this is interesting. So around this time, Hastings Banda, who was the dictator in uh, some fashion of Malawi for over 30 years from around like 1961 to 1994, he was, Chipasula was an undergrad, um, I think at the University of Zambia, and basically decided that he was in danger where he was because of the regime and went into exile in 1973 and cut short, basically didn't finish his undergraduate career there, but has been writing. Some consider him to be one of the, the greatest contemporary Malawian poets. And just another bit of context that is sort of relevant to our discussion of Carolyn Forche's poem, because one is always forgotten. Hastings' banda was supported by um, the West and the U.S. for much of his regime because he was sort of a a pro like west force in the cold war and so even though his dictatorship was heinous and brutal um we sort of helped him uh sustain that so this poem is called manifesto on ars poetica which is quite a title and ars poetica is like a kind of poem that basically is talking about what a poem is or what a poem should be. Um, and it sort of goes back to Horace, who has his own uh, ancient Ars Poetica. But um, this is kind of like a manifesto on that subject. And it's important that he's, he's reflecting on sort of Malawi and sort of his exile, but also just like, you know, what's, what's happened under... Uh, Banda specifically. And now I will read it. Manifesto on Ars Poetica. My poetry is exacting a confession from me. I will not keep the truth from my song. I will not bar the voice undressed by the bees from entering the gourd of my bow harp. I will not wash the blood off the image. I will let it flow from the gullet, slit by the assassin's dagger through the run-on line until it rages in the verbs of terror. And I will distill life into the horrible adjectives. I will not clean the poem to impress the tyrant. I will not bend my verses into the bow of a praise song. I will put the symbols of murder hidden in high offices in the center of my crude lines of accusations. 
I will undress our raped land and expose her wounds. I will pierce the silence around our land with sharp metaphors, and I will point the light of my poems into the dark nooks where our people are pounded to pulp. I will not coat my words in lumps of sugar. I will serve them to our people with the bitter quinine. I will not keep the truth from my heart-stringed guitar. I will thread the voice from the broken lips through my volatile verbs that burn the lies. I will ask only that the poem watch the world closely. I will ask only that the image put a lamp on the dark ceiling in the dark sky of my land and light the dirt. Today, my poetry has exacted a confession from me. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah, so I love this poem. I just think there's a lot going on. And to me, like, sort of broadly, I feel like, you know, with thinking about the title Manifesto on Ars Poetica, it's thinking about, you know, what can poems do? What can his poetry do? Um, but specifically, it's like, how can poetry speak the truth, basically? And to be more specific, how can it speak the truth about Malawi, its people, its government, the sort of suffering that it's endured? And there's this line that I love so much, and I will point the light of my poems into the dark nooks where our people are pounded to pulp. So the light of the poem is sort of shedding, you know, shedding light on on this, you know, this pounding that is kind of a, you know, probably a figurative reference or encapsulation of the the kind of brutality that um, Hastings Banda oversaw. Yeah, and so I I just I I love that sort of the way that it thinks through those questions. I like that you drew out that line because that was something that I had picked up. Uh, when I first read through this is just the way that dark and light are functioning in the poem and that the world, sort of the entire universe is this embodied darkness and that the poem's job is to cut into it in various ways. There's a lot of different like cutting slashing imagery relating to the poem or like burning away deception. Again, the light of the fire burning away darkness. And then it becomes very literal at the end where there is that section I will ask only that the image put a lamp on the dark ceiling in the dark sky of my land and light the dirt. So in that you find out that the sky is dark and that the dirt needs lighting. Literally everything around this area is cloaked in darkness and that this poem's job is to somehow cut its way in and bring light. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. And I will pierce the silence around our land with sharp metaphors, as you were saying. That that whole section towards the end points back to some of the imagery used at the beginning about the incisiveness of the poem and how it is crucial that it bring the light of truth or just the light of a different kind of being into this dark place. I think that's exactly right, both with, with darkness and with the cutting. Yeah, in the beginning, there's, I will let it flow from the gullet slit by the assassin's dagger through the run-on line. You know, I, yeah, I will pierce the silence. And also, notably, you know, it's a very interesting poem. I'm sure everyone heard the repetition of, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's a very, like, extreme example of anaphora. And frequently, the lines are sort of not enjammed. Um, they're kind of like each 
most of the lines start with I will and the sentence kind of finishes, or at least the phrase, you know, I will not wash the blood off the image. I will let it flow from the gullet. You know, I will not clean the poem to impress the tyrant. I will not bend the verses into the into the bow of a praise song. But there's like a few really extreme enjambments, and two of them are with the word dark, which I think really shine, makes your your point um, all the more right. I will point the light of my poems into the dark, and there's a line break, nooks where our people are pounded to pulp. And then and toward the end, I will ask only that the image put a lamp on the dark. And then there's a line break, ceiling in the dark sky of my land and light the dirt. So I think, I think you're exactly right that that's one of the sort of central ways that the speaker is thinking about how poems can speak truth, which is like through this cutting of of darkness with light. Yeah, and that the the light really has to fight its way into this world, that it's not easy. And that's a lot of what this poem is talking about is essentially not pulling any punches, either in describing the darkness of the world or in using powerful language to pierce through and bring light to the dark. Incidentally, that line about the dark nooks also took me back to our conversation about the Carolyn Forche poem where she talks about the four dark chambers um, where people were being, you know, if not pounded to pulp, at least it was a similar type of oppression in a, in a confined dark nook. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. One thing that I like so much about the poem, which I think is especially pleasing for me is like it sometimes is a bit of a, a poet's poem or whatever uh, in that it's doing what it's saying it's doing basically. And, you know, in the way that, you know, as you were saying um, that it's not pulling any punches, you know, that, that kind of um, refusal to back down or temper anything, you know, comes up a lot. I will not clean the poem to impress the tyrant. You know, I will expose her wounds, her land's wounds. Yeah, I will not coat my words in lumps of sugar. I will serve them to our people with the bitter quinine. But then at the same time, the poem is also doing it too. So the anaphora itself is like such a manifesto, like tone. It's like so like in your face and direct like i will not do this i will do this i will not do that um you know it's very clear and powerful in the way that it is expressing itself that sort of is trying to mirror the way it's it's trying to talk about how a poem should um and sometimes this becomes very clear you know so like i will not wash the blood off the image i will let it flow from the gullet slit by the assassin's dagger through the run-on line until it rages in the verbs of terror. And there's a semicolon and things continue on. And so here, there's the run-on line that's referenced and the lines itself are sort of enjammed and it's such a long line. So it is like a really, it's like the most run-on moment of the poem um, that's kind of like embodying the way that the dagger has sort of slit things. Um, and similarly, like the moment I will put uh, the symbols of murder in the center of my crude lines of accusations, that moment happens pretty much near the center of the poem. So the lines of accusations are towards the middle. Yeah, so I think there's a there's that element too that 
is very striking to me. And it's interesting because on the one hand, it's both trying to embody what it's saying it's doing, but in doing so, it's actually not, or it's not being direct. Like it's not like a Carolyn Porsche documentary witness kind of poem where it's like, I'm in this place, I'm seeing this person being pounded to a pulp and now I am describing it. Rather, it's describing how one will describe it. And that both gets at it more closely and puts it further away in some kind of way, which is interesting. That is interesting. And I like that you draw that out. I think there's almost a framing device at work that makes that fit in that the beginning, the poem says, my poetry is exacting a confession from me. And then there's this list of I wills in this manifesto. And then at the end, it says, today, my poetry has exacted a confession from me. You could almost read that first line as being about these other poems that do directly describe what's going on, that my poetry about this subject has led me to have to write this manifesto about what that poetry should be like. And then after writing it, returning to the idea of like, oh, yeah, my poetry actually pulled this description out of me. Yeah. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. I think that's really right. That sort of over the time of the poem, the confession has been exacted. And yeah, I uh, found this in sort of a, another scholarly work about witness poetry generally and, and by uh, Dale Tracy is called With the Witnesses. She sort of brings that up too. And the other thing that she brings up is how exacting has kind of two, or she sort of reads it as having two meanings. One is exacting in the like, I'm pulling it out of you. The other is kind of perfecting, like making exact. Um, And so by the end of the poem, it has both become pulled out, but it's also become crystallized in sort of a perfected way, um, which which I really like. And the other part that I love about that too, which, which Dale Tracy also brings up, is that oftentimes the speaker of a poem is like the one doing things, you know, uh, like moving around in the world, seeing things, saying things, blah, blah, blah. But in this poem, it's the poetry itself. It's the poems itself that are doing all the work and that are actually exerting force on the speaker. You know, my poetry is exacting a confession from me. And the speaker is actually trying to respond to the poem but the poem is sort of doing the work. So similarly, like, I will not bar the voice undressed by the bees from entering the gourd of my bow harp. The bees are undressing the voice, you know, um, and I won't prevent it from happening. Um, And that's kind of like how the voice will enter the gourd of the bow harp and, you know, produce the song of the poem. But it's the bees themselves that are doing that kind of work. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to me that there's this kind of like primacy of the poem before the speaker that feels like very important throughout. For sure. And yeah. And that kind of comes to a close, I think at the end, um, which I just love this moment. And it's, it's, I think it's a really great turn. I will ask only that the poem watch the world closely. I will ask only that the image put a lamp on the dark ceiling and the dark sky of my land and light the dirt. And you had sort of pointed out that lamp in the darkness, but it's interesting. Again, the speaker is not watching the world. 
The speaker is not putting the lamp. It's the poem that watches the world and it's the image that puts the lamp on the dark ceiling. And the speaker can ask <laughs> that the poem does such things. But yeah, I just, I think that's, um, it's a very interesting way of thinking about poetry and also specifically like the role of poetry in this kind of context of like trying to bear witness to um, atrocity of some kind or, or intense suffering. Definitely. And it also turns the speaker almost into a conduit because from the very beginning, the poetry is exacting the confession all throughout this, as you were saying, it's the image that does the work. It's the poem that's going to watch the world or that brings the light in the speaker just happens to be the one writing and it's it gives the poetry a life separate from the individual writing it uh, and it interestingly almost negates the individual the individual is talking about how they're going to write this poetry in this piece but you get the sense that the poetry forced them to write it and the poetry that they write is what is actually is what really matters and what is really important they themselves become less there's less primacy given to the speaker than to the to the poem and the poetry yeah. as, as you were saying yeah and that i think is like also sort of performed or enacted in the ways that the poem draws itself draws attention to itself as a poem there's kind of a phrase or a term that i think about a lot in my own writing but um in poems generally which is just self like self-reflexivity um or the self-reflexive which is just like a time when a piece of art is sort of thinking about you know itself as a piece of art or as a construction of art and this is a very self-reflexive poem in the way that poetry things are sort of and language is referenced all the time so my poetry is exacting confession but then also the run on line until it rages in the verbs of terror I will distill life into the horrible adjectives. I will pierce the silence around our land with sharp metaphors. I will thread the voice from the broken lips through my volatile verbs that burn the lies. So the sort of mention of verbs, adjectives, metaphors, run on line are, you know, descriptors that are, you know, the building blocks of the poem itself. And so in being explicit about those, it draws attention to itself as a poem constructed in these kinds of ways, which is sort of necessary for this poem, which wants to have the poem be the first thing rather than the speaker be the first thing. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about self-reflexivity because I think sometimes, and this is, I blame postmodern fiction for this, but it gets a I get think it gets a bad rap for being self-indulgent and ultimately like an empty kind of technique where you have a a piece like metafiction that like knows it's a piece of fiction and it's sort of talking about itself. Um, and it can be very like navel gazy in the Deadpool way that too that... in theaters now. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, that's like the whole shtick with Deadpool is that he's just like, oh, did you know this is a comic book movie and I'm a comic book guy? Like, lol. Uh -oh. <laughs> Josh yeah. Brolin plays the bad guy, so he calls him Thanos because he also played Thanos in the Avengers movie. Haha, <laughs> references. Yeah. Yes. Or Family exactly. Guy. Yeah. No, Family Guy. Or, I mean, I like 
this movie, but it's like on the edge. But Adaptation, which is like the most self-reflexive movie of Nicolas Cage plays a guy named Charlie Kaufman. The, play, the movie's written by Charlie Kaufman and he's trying to adapt a book into a movie and is having trouble writing the script that then probably becomes the movie. So it's very like self-reflexive, but it's almost, there's almost an emptiness at the center because the self-reflexive part makes it about itself. So then there's like nothing that it's referring to outside itself. That's I think the danger or the bad rap that it gets. But here, I think it's like an interesting example of the self-reflexive being sort of an integral part of a poem that is like the least navel gazy thing of all time. And also the most direct too, in some kind of ways, the way that it's so forceful with its language and the way that it's so clear about the thing, you know, that is wrong, that that is the thing that the poem is talking about. Along those lines, sort of. (laughs) Well, I I think it's really because this is, an instance where the poem is pointing outwards to something, which is that the title contains Ars Poetica. And so, I mean, my main question, obviously that's an established sort of genre of poem where you talk about your orientation towards poetry. What I was wondering going through this is how much is this piece in conversation with that genre on the whole? And how much is it in conversation with the Ars Poetica, the original Horace manifesto my guess which is not well founded is that it's more generally about the genre in that i think the chorus one is i mean it i mean it's probably thinking about it but from what i remember the horus ars poetica is about the poem should be like entertaining or like and like beautiful to people and then the sort of like crude there's a lot of things in between them. But then like in modernist poetry in the early 20th century, mid 20th century, there was often a kind of like the poem should just be a poem for itself or like for its own sake, poem, art for art's sake or whatever. Modernism um, also loved manifestos. Like every group had some crazy manifesto. Yeah, I know. It's so weird. It would be neat to have that back. I like it. It's great to find old weird manifestos from fringe like arts groups and architecture groups. We're like, this is the manifesto of human architecture. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> You've got like 24 points that make no goddamn sense. It's like every sidewalk should be moss. It's like, all right, cool. Uh, not that intense, but like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm into that. That's, that's yeah, that sounds good. Um, all right. I'm all for manifestos. I, I think you're probably right. Uh, there were only a couple of parts of this that stuck out as maybe being directly the extent to which they would be in conversation with the Horace uh, Ars Poetica is just sort of in opposition to it, just because Horace was an established member of the the Roman sort of elites, and the Ars Poetica was written as advice to a couple of young, well-to-do, like he was tutoring these guys. And so it was like advice to some up and coming youngsters. And he was, you know, well liked by the various upper crust people given a farm, all that kind of stuff. So when it says, I will not clean the poem to impress the tyrant, 
that sort of language and that specific reference of writing against entrenched power structures. Obviously, it's clear that that could exist completely separate from a conversation with the original, but it's that's that's the part that to me at least seemed like maybe it was writing against some of the tradition of this genre, which is about not only taking into account audience enjoyment, but also possibly being a part of established power structures. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I would say it also, that line put me in mind of many ancient Chinese poets, some of whom were like court poets, but many of whom refused to write for the emperor and went and lived, you know, on their own in in mountains and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, no, that, that I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and definitely he, you know, he would be aware, he is very, you know, he has a PhD in English too, and um, is clearly like well versed in, you know, probably many canons, including the Western canon. And so, yeah, I think that that seems very plausible. And it's it's a nice moment where like tyrant on the one hand could be, you know, the sort of reference to the Horatian. Is that a word you can say, Horatian? All right, I said it. Uh, vibe that you were talking about of, you know, court poets writing for. Um, the elite and the, the powerful, but also is clearly a reference to Hastings and uh, like the, the Malawian tyrant. Um, Absolutely. But that kind of doubleness is also in exacting, as the scholar Dale Tracy had pointed out. And this makes me think of, you had asked this question, Jack, of the word bow, or is it bow? Yes. Um, the line, I will not bend my verses into the bow or bow of a praise song. So... Now I'm thinking, I had thought instinctively it's the bow, like the bow harp of the I, praise song. But then you were thinking that it could also be bow, like one who bows to something. Yes. And I also initially had, had thought of bow of a praise song as you bow an instrument. There's the bow harp right before that. Incidentally, the bow harp also put me in mind of Horatio because it's sort of a lute-like instrument, but that's sort of separate. But yeah, I, upon reflection, I realized maybe my third or fourth time through the poem that I no longer was so sure that it was bow because bow occurred to me as a possibility because I was thinking of the bending of one's will. It says, I will not bend my verses into the bow or bow of a praise song. And I was thinking about the multiple uses of the word bending, like you bend someone to your will or you bend your body. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. There are a lot of things that bend and realized that maybe it was the bow of a praise song. Uh, and I don't know. And similar as you were saying to the two meanings of the word exacting, it's quite possible that both are the intention. Yeah, it seems to me to be both because it works so perfectly for both. Because you do bend a bow like, a bow and arrow type thing, but also, yeah, you obviously bend your body in a bow. And a praise song is a sort of like self-acknowledged, obsequious, like sort of like you're the best type vibe, you know, you're praising whomever. And that is a kind of like linguistic bending and a linguistic bowing to their greatness of some kind. So it makes, I'm in, I'm in for it. And especially because the doubleness seems to be in different areas, I'm I'm happy I'm happier and more comfortable thinking that it has sort of both those meanings. Yeah, I feel good about it. At first, I wasn't sure if I was just totally off the ranch, and I was glad that we got to talk about it. And 
because I do think you're right. It they both work so well that it seems to to fit. I also really like that next line. I will put the symbols of murder hidden in high offices in the center of my crude lines of accusation, uh, which is clearly about the specific situation against which he's writing, but it also is a way of describing institutional violence that at least I know I've heard in other like protest songs and poems. The first thing I thought it was Bob Dylan's Masters of War, you that hide behind walls, you that hide behind desks. Um, I want you to know that I see through your masks. And also I think it was Tom Waits who had a song about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict talking about the United States' involvement in trying to broker a peace deal uh, that has a line, he plays chess at his desk and poses for the press 10,000 miles from the road to peace. And I just like that hidden in high offices as a descriptor and that it both speaks to the specific situation, but similar to a lot of the other language in this also is really strongly in conversation with other works that have been done and other works that would be done on this particular subject. It, it felt to me like a moment of the poem reaching out and giving me a chance to make a lot of connections beyond it. Not that there aren't other parts of the poem that can do that, but that specifically felt like one where the language was in that nice sweet spot in terms of specificity and generality that it was, I, I got a good dose of the specific, but it gave me something to run with on my own meaning making within the poem that I really liked. Yeah, I think that's right. I also like thinking of like a dictator or someone who is in that, the, the regime government is a symbol of murder that like the person themselves is like symbolic of the murders they either commit or order. Um, I also like crude lines of accusation because I think one of the, critiques of protest work can be that it's too straightforward. And part of what Frank Chipasula is saying is like, sometimes you just got to call it out. And yeah. I will write stuff that is crude in its accusations that is so blunt as to be, I don't know, almost non-poetical. It's going to be so strong, but I'm not going to back away from that because it's what needs to be written. I agree. One thing that stuck out to me is just how much violent imagery is in the poem. You got murder, assassin, wounds, pounded pulp, burn the lies, broken li uh, lips, blood shows up all over the place, wounds. It's just a, a poem that is clearly born in, in violence. And I think that that's something that just, because it's not just in describing the world, sort of hearkening back to the dark light conversation, there's the world and then there's the poem. Both of them are described with this violent language. One, sort of the nature of its reality and the other, the description of the strength needed to push back against that dark reality. Yeah, just as like a little context that human rights groups uh, estimate that at least 6,000 people were killed, tortured and jailed without trial. And one estimate puts that number at uh, as many as 18,000. Wow. Um, yeah, it was just a very brutal regime. Um, also, one of the only nations that continued full diplomatic relations with um, apartheid South Africa. Oh, uh, good. Although America, that's fairly, that's why uh, during the Reagan era, America and Malawi were buds because the U.S. was also hanging out with South Africa. So, yup. 
<laughs> but you're right to point that out. I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting poem where there's so much blood and then there's so much just pure poetry or like poetry as like a dis, like a thing you could describe visually, you know, adjectives and verbs and stuff. Uh symbols of murder sort of captures it, I think. Um but having those two you know, like in in a way, in contrast with the Carolyn Forche, who sort of mostly was describing the brutality just as is, like trying to make it as non dressed up as possible or non as non poetic as possible. You know, this is sort of doing both at the same time in a way is a kind of uncanny and disturbing effect. And, and it also there's there's will nots and wills in this poem. And the violence shows up in both the will nots and the wills. I will not wash the blood off the image. I will let it flow from the gullet. And so it's both, I'm not going to take the violence out and I am going to put violence in. I am going to be strong in the way that I describe this. Yeah. And I really like, I don't know. I just, I mean, maybe we've read a lot of them on this podcast, but I feel like, you know, this poem is referring to things that, you know, maybe are happening decades earlier or at least whatever, but it was, I think, published in 2014. So it's a relatively recent poem. Um, and perhaps it's also referring to continued things that are going on in Malawi. I'm not exactly sure on its, its more recent history, but it does feel rare to find so confident and so authoritative a poem in contemporary poetry where I think there's like, for some good reasons, a resistance to saying anything about the world outside of yourself. And like the, the kind of, I feel like this is a poem that is speaking very clearly about the world, a large world outside of himself um, that he's nevertheless connected to, but with sort of great authority that nevertheless, I think, is both in some ways comp is still complicated and nuanced, but still like assertive in its claims about what's going on. And so I, I appreciated that when I came across it. Definitely. Should we uh, read it again? Let's do it. All right. Manifesto on Ars Poetica by Frank Chipasula. My poetry is exacting a confession from me. I will not keep the truth for my song. I will not bar the voice undressed by the bees from entering the gourd of my bow harp. I will not wash the blood off the image. I will let it flow from the gullet, slit by the assassin's dagger through the run-on line until it rages in the verbs of terror. And I will distill life into the horrible adjectives. I will not clean the poem to impress the tyrant. I will not bend my verses into the bow or the bow of a praise song. I will put the symbols of murder hidden in high offices in the center of my crude lines of accusations. I will undress our raped land and expose her wounds. I will pierce the silence around our land with sharp metaphors and I will point the light of my poems into the dark nooks where our people are pounded to pulp. I will not coat my words in lumps of sugar, 
I will serve them to our people with the bitter quinine. I will not keep the truth from my heart-stringed guitar. I will thread the voice from the broken lips through my volatile verbs that burn the lies. I will ask only that the poem watch the world closely. I will ask only that the image put a lamp on the dark ceiling in the dark sky of my land and light the dirt. Today, my poetry has exacted a confession from me. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this, please, please write a review on iTunes or at the very least, rate us. You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book-related news at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. You can also follow me at hot sauce boxed or Jack at Jack Rossiter Munn. If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed, think we got something wrong, have a new idea for a topic we should tackle or a work we should discuss, please let us know, tweet at us, or shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com.